independent-minded with Ronnie Scalzo. What do you do when the guy you're supposed to interview turns into someone else? I don't mean the Wolfman, Mr. Hyde, or even the Incredible Hulk. I'm talking about a completely different person. That's what happened to me on a bitterly cold November night in the district. When I arrive at the legendary 930 Club to interview Wes Miles, the lead singer of Brooklyn by way of Syracuse, New York indie rock band Ra Ra Riot. Wes is there, of course. He's got a show to do. But the man is ailing, under the weather. And before I can even remove my wool hat, the band's tour manager throws me a curveball. The interview is still on, it just won't be with Wes. Instead, I get the privilege of talking with Ra Ra Riot's bass player, Mr. Matt Santos, for episode 108 of the Independent Minded Podcast. Now, a greener, less grizzled veteran of the indie music scene might have thrown a fit, or maybe even shit a brick. But not this guy. Because after seven short years of doing this podcast, I've seen it all, done it all. On second thought, no one's died on me yet. But I have become unflappable. I've attained a level of zen that makes this particular situation more than manageable. In fact, these on-site interviews have become part of the fun. Long treks through strange and often not-so-safe neighborhoods. Interviews in alleyways, parking garages, Ethiopian restaurants. This, my friends, is guerrilla podcasting at its finest, and I'll be damned if anyone's going to make a monkey out of me. In a lot of ways, independent-minded is great practice for life. Dealing with adversity, approaching tough situations with levity and grace. And oftentimes there are rewards. And so we head upstairs to a balcony dressing room high above the stage at the club. Me recovering from my episode 107 head cold. Matt adorned in a Budweiser sweatshirt and a baseball cap with a large red heart on it. Truly love is in the air. When I see Matt on stage about an hour or so later, he's dressed all in white. An extra out of Midsomar, a Buddhist monk with a bass guitar. In fact, the whole band is dressed in white as they hit the stage for one of the final dates of their headlining tour to promote their latest album, Super Bloom. Hopefully they're not planning to murder and or eat anyone in the crowd after the show. Up in our rock and roll crow's nest, Matt and I talk about the band's humble beginnings, poor tour packing, bonding over U2, juggling schedules, and his bass guitar heroes. Let's kick the podcast party off with Flowers from Ra Ra Riot's latest album, then my last-second switcheroo conversation with Matt Santos, right here on Independent Minded. It's Ronnie Scalzo's amazing podcast. It's Ronnie Scalzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people who make art and music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they do.
breakfast like late at night if there's like a 24-hour diner i'll have breakfast after the show yeah it's weird it's bad that is definitely weird and if i was a nutritionist i'd scold you yeah I'm but sure. fortunately i'm not I'm, I'm kind of envious of anybody <laughs> who can eat like french toast at two o'clock in the morning and ramen for breakfast yeah i'm sure dietitians and physicians i'm sure lots of people would have things to say about our habits on tour is this a new custom or is this something that you've kind of been doing over the years well, the funny thing with tour, especially with the bus tour, you can never do stuff when you want to do things. You have to wait until you like you have the chance to. So like eating, you know, I go to bed at like five in the morning. So I sleep until about one or two. So then I wake up and if I have time to eat, I don't know. It's just like what's closest and do I want breakfast or someone's getting ramen? I'll just go get ramen with you because it's like right across the street. You know, it's just something to eat so you don't pass out like later before the show. And then, yeah, so you're always fitting food into weird things. And it's like after the show, you're starving. You don't want to order pizza. So you're like, oh, there's a diner nearby. And I was like, oh, I haven't had pancakes in a while. Maybe now's my chance to have some eggs and pancakes. You know, I don't care. It's two in the morning, whatever, whatever works. Well, this is a great launching pad for my rah, rah, riot interview. I am an independent musician, but I've never done a proper tour. We don't need to get into why. <laughs> so whenever I talk to bands coming into town, I'm always fascinated and maybe I romanticize the whole touring experience. But a lot of these bands and a lot of these artists that I talk to, including yourself, are beholden to a schedule. Mm -hmm. And you're also beholden to other things. And one of the things that comes to mind immediately on a night like tonight is the weather. It is bitterly cold <laughs> in Washington, D.C. tonight. Like, how do these situations like the weather being affect a tour there's so many so many variables it's really fascinating and we've we've been touring now for almost 14 years pretty much and it's like second nature to us but still you never really know what to expect and small variables can throw everything off i mean you know the band itself it's like it's crazy you know if you know if you've ever been in a like a relationship with someone which i'm sure most people have been i have it's like that you know it's like those interpersonal dynamics times like five or six plus you have the crew so like you're living with like seven or eight people at all times so you know small fluctuations in one person's mood or one person's health can start a chain reaction um the weather kind of stuff that you were just mentioning it's funny this tour 
we all packed so poorly for this tour because it started in October and it was like still 80 in New York. Like none of us brought winter coats. You know, my my girlfriend was like, aren't you going to bring your winter coat on this tour? It's like a fall tour. I was like, no, it's going to be 90. And we're going to El Paso. I'm like, it's going to be hot. I don't need. And then sure enough, like a week ago, we're in Vancouver and it was like 20 degrees and I was wearing sweatpants under my jeans, which like barely fit under the, you know. Good look. Grew, yeah. Yeah. It did, did look really cool, which was the best part. And you know, you, you get into the these... Michelin man look. Yeah, exactly. She sent me that picture of uh, Joey and friends, the episode where he gets around the baggage fees by wearing all of his right, clothes. Right, right, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like that for a little <laughs> bit. The tough part in the past like week or so has been the longer we're on tour, the later and later I end up going to bed just because, I don't know, you play late, then you need to like cool down. You got to load out, you got to decompress, take a shower if you're lucky. Then you want to have a snack. And then by that point, it's like two or three in the morning. And I'm a night owl anyway. So then I end up staying up a little bit later once everyone goes to bed because I like my little, you know, quiet, private nighttime, just like read. So, you know, I end up going to bed at like four or five in the morning, especially as we're coming back east. So like we're losing an hour every couple of days with the time zones. And now we just had daylight savings. So now, you know, if I sleep until two or three in the afternoon, I wake up and I've got about, you know, an hour of sunlight. And it's just cast straight into darkness. In the last week, you know, in Toronto, it was snowing and sleeting. In Boston, it was sleeting. And so it's just been like, if you start going down the, the wrong path, you know, you're just on the bus, in the green room, in a hotel room. You're just like, it's and that's blur. like, yeah, yeah, that's your entire life. That being said, you know, you're right to romanticize it because it is, it is romantic, even the bad parts. And we always try to psych ourselves up in these like low points and tour. And especially now, like this is the end of this tour. So we're kind of, everyone's a little extra exhausted kind of and uh people are getting a little sick we always say the you know worst day on tour is still still beats the best day at whatever you know other jobs we have back home you know what guys like me are doing yeah well, at, least, <laughs> at least i'm not that guy yeah <laughs> all kidding aside that is refreshing to hear because i've certainly heard nightmare stories you know i imagine if there's torrential downpours and you're all on the bus together Nobody wants to get off the bus. Nobody wants to leave the venue. Nobody yeah. wants to mm -hmm. explore. And that could make people a little itchy, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough, too, because you look at the tour schedule and like, oh, I'm going to be in Chicago. We have a day off in San Francisco, like all these cool cities. And then you get there and you're too tired or like, yeah, it's too shitty out right. and you're just trapped on the bus. Wes is under the blankets. Yeah. Know, with he's got his, pump and he's, he's got a special mask on. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. You can is he wearing really, a mask? Yeah, he has one of those uh, kind of like... Bono style Bane kind of like steam facial things. Yeah. What, what do you mean Bono style? Does Bono wear a mask like that? Yeah, he started to. Bane, and, I know. I've he, seen the movies. Bono is similar. He started doing it in the 90s, I think, because he started losing his voice on like the pop tour. So he got this crazy oxygen tank. And there was like a few. Uh, and again, you know, they play for like two and a half hours and he's like screaming. So he, he started getting really serious about it. And I think there was like a couple of weeks where he wouldn't say anything if he wasn't on stage, like the no, entire rest of the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's this great interview where the edge is like, this is my favorite tour we've ever been on because Bono, Bono can't open his, his mouth. mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad we went down this road. One of the questions I was going to ask Wes was, is he influenced by Bono? Because his falsetto is very reminiscent of the Bono of the pop era, the Octung Baby era. Is you 2 a big influence on Ra Ra Ra? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you nailed it. And it's funny because one of the first things that Wes and I bonded over when we first met was um, he was giving me a ride home from one of our first rehearsals. And, you know, we had just met. It was like kind of awkward and silent. And then he was listening to uh, Boy, you know, the first U2 record sure. in his car. And I was like, 
you like you too because even you know i don't know if it's cool to like you too but it felt like it was not, you know when you meet another u2 fan you're kind of like this guy's on the level so cool. we bonded over that early but you mentioned octung baby that's actually his favorite u2 record and my favorite YouTube record is pop. So like we bonded over our love of specifically nineties YouTube. That is but, not, um, that is an unconventional choice, but, but yeah. And I wasn't you. even trying to be weird or anything, <laughs> but funnily enough, I, you know, I knew I was like vaguely aware of who U2 was, but I saw that Simpsons episode that they were in, in the pop Mart era when I was a kid and they had like their crazy outfits on. And I was like, Oh, this is that YouTube band I've heard of. They seem really cool. And then that was the CD that was out at the time. So I just sure. like bought it without really knowing, you know, much about their catalog. So that was your introduction um, to YouTube considering yeah, the pop. massive singles that they had released leading up at the level. I had pop and I did have a greatest hits also to okay. go along with it. So I was a little schooled, but yeah. And I know he learned to sing like singing along with Zeppelin records and, you know, so keeping up with Robert Plant, sure. obviously, you know, that developed and he's also a big Kate Bush fan, but yeah, we all like a lot of those anthemic, 80s pop bands with like really soaring powerful vocals i know he likes a lot of um female vocalists in particular too so i think that's probably how he developed some of his style so you're a massachusetts boy he's a new jersey boy how did you guys hook up the four original members still in the band we all met at syracuse university right but none of us knew each other ahead of time so it was kind of funny we were sort of assembled it was milo our uh, guitarist he just wanted to start a band and it was like you know i saw another band that he was in they didn't have a bass player, but I thought they were really cool. So I just introduced myself after the show. I was like, hey, can I play bass with you? And he's like, yeah, but I'm going to start a new band. Let's be in that band instead. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, we knew of uh, this drummer, John, on campus, who was like the best drummer on campus. So we like found our way to him. And then he was really good friends with Wes. So he brought Wes support. So it was like all, you know, Milo was in class with Becca. He's like, do you play violin? I heard you play violin. You want to be in my band? So it was very put together completely randomly. And it's funny because we were all in different programs. Basically, all of us met at our first rehearsal, which is kind of funny. Wow. It was like, yeah, totally assembled randomly. Well, if you went yeah. to Syracuse, then this weather is right up your alley. <laughs> oh, yeah. I do have a soft spot for this kind of stuff. Just not, yeah, when I'm also trapped on a bus yeah. at the same time. I actually applied to go to Syracuse. And if things would have been different, maybe I would have been in your band. But, uh, <laughs> oh, damn. I was accepted. I just didn't go. I stayed home. What program? Uh, was the it Journalism? Newhouse? Newhouse yeah. School of Communications. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep, it was a little too expensive and a little too far away and a little too cold for my taste. You know, I, I'm a kind of a go with the flow guy, but I had a, I had a hard time acclimating. I think I missed the ocean. That was the hardest part for me. I'd never been like landlocked before. And really? then once the winter hit, man, I was like, I thought I knew what winter was like, but this is a whole different thing. So let's talk about your upbringing and, and how you got into playing the bass. Like, when did it start for you? It obviously started before college if you were already joining this band around that time. How yeah. did you get into music? The main focus of my life growing up was, was was sports. I played hockey like year round, did like summer camps, but I was always really interested in music. My mom was a huge Beatles fan. She would like be singing in the house all yeah, the mine time. Too. Oh, nice. Yeah. And my dad was a Dave Clark Five fan, so there was a little tension there, but um, oh, wow. but he loved like Robert Palmer. So I don't know. I just grew up listening to stuff. No one in my family played instruments, but my best friend growing up, Mike, who actually played drums for us for a little bit, he was my next door neighbor and he was a was and still is a really good drummer so i'd go to his house after school and we would just like nerd out about music and he would play drums and i would like set up a tripod like videotape and playing drums and i got my first bass around uh i think it was like freshman year in high school i had already also sort of been interested in bass anyway i don't know why i just was drawn to like the more like foundational kind of stuff yeah i was um, gonna ask it's a bit of a cliche to not start with the bass 
but you seem to have gravitated to it right from the start. Yeah, it was my first instrument. Yeah, and and also it seemed like a low barrier of entry because you know just four <laughs> strings. You know, you play one note at a time. You want to challenge you know. yourself too much? Yeah, exactly. I was like, yeah, I'll take my time. Yeah, I really connected with the instrument like right away, and and around that time too, like I said, I was playing hockey very seriously. But around that time, I was had to sort of make some choices where I was like. Um, probably not going to be the starting defenseman for the Bruins in a few years. So it just opened up a lot more time to start doing other things. And then, yeah, once I went to college, my plan was like, once I go to college, I'm going to go to art school. I'm going to meet like a million musicians and be in like all kinds of bands. And it's like, kind of more or less what happened. Do you ever second guess the decision to give up hockey instead of music? I mean, no, because sadly it was it was like health related. You know, I got I had a few concussions. Oh, yikes. So that, that was really tough because, you know, that was like my first love and, and still in, in a lot of ways is. But I think it was an easy choice for me at the time because, you know, I was getting um, like EEGs and stuff. I was seeing a, this neurologist. And after like the most recent concussion, I ended up having to miss a whole season of hockey. The neurologist, once he cleared me, he was like, I was with my parents. And he was like, well, he's like, okay, well, technically you passed all the tests, you're medically cleared. I can clear you to play now. But if you were my kid, I wouldn't let you play. And so when he said that, I was like, okay. That's sure. Like, yeah. I'm sure your parents probably chimed in on that as well. Yeah. Like I said, I knew I wasn't going to go much farther. So I didn't. I, I wanted to have some brain capacity left later in life. Well, you've been doing this for a long time, but I'm here to tell you that I was a singer in a band. And one time we played on the college campus of Brooklyn College. And I had this impromptu idea that at the end of the set, we had made like a video screen out of paper mache and like a coat rack nice. and we had it behind us. It was real DIY. And I said, as soon as the last note of the last song plays, I'm going to jump through the video screen and the curtain for the stage is behind it. And it's going to look like I just jumped through the screen and I'm going to disappear. and It's going to be the coolest thing Hell ever. Yeah. So we play the last note. I jump through the screen and then I expect to just fly through the curtain on the other side and right on the other side of the curtain where I can't see, the next band who's going on is drum set is, is right there. <laughs> I crack my head on the drum set. I look like a professional wrestler in a steel cage mask. And I had to go to the emergency room and get butterfly stitches and, and I'm bald. So it did not look pretty. There was no hair to mask the gaping wound. So I'm here to tell you that there are some perils uh, and concussion-related in injuries that you can have that are related to music. That's so don't right. jump through any screens, man. Okay, well, thank you. That's a good tip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No job is safe from head trauma. Exactly. Let's talk about the new record, Super Bloom. It's your fifth album. What I'm reading online and what I've heard is that this album was recorded in multiple locations with multiple collaborators, including Rostam from Vampire Weekend, who you've worked with previously. Mm -hmm, yeah. One fun fact that I found out was that some of this record was recorded in. Wes's parents' house in Frenchtown, New Jersey. Uh huh. I have no idea where Frenchtown is. Can you school me on Frenchtown, New I, Jersey? I think I can, yeah. So it's in the uh, Delaware River Valley. So gap. south. We're is way that a south. thing? Yes. So it's kind of, it's right, yeah, it's right on the Delaware Pennsylvania water gap. border. Yeah, the water gap, exactly, yeah. There's no shame in not knowing where it is or what it is because it's a really tiny, uh, I don't know, is it a hamlet? maybe a village. I think it's only like a couple of thousand people who live there. You know, his parents also, they grew up in the city or just outside, I think, um, in uh, Glen Ridge, New Jersey. But, you know, they lived in the city for a time. They lived in Hoboken. So that was like their house to like get away oh, from okay. the city. So they moved out there, I think, when we were in college. But it was kind of perfect because they had this big carriage house, basically a big empty barn on the property that was like, you know, had like heat and electricity and floor and stuff. So early on in the band's history, we would sort of decamp there for like a week or two at a time. 
rehearse for tour, work on music. So that was sort of like one of our early like headquarters. And they had like all these extra bedrooms. So it was like sort of perfect for us and a pool. You know, oh, very, very important for, for musicians development. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get a swim in in between. Oh, uh, yeah. The songwriting. I, mean, I have memories of <laughs> we would be at the pool drinking uh, Yingling black and tans out of the can because that was like the house beer. You know, we were yeah. just like, oh, it's like local beer. And uh, his dad would come out and be like, while you guys are in the pool, all the other bands are writing hits. And we're like, God damn it, he's right. And then we would uh, get up and go back in the house. What a chop buster. Yeah, no, but you know, thanks, Doug. You know, we so how does, yeah, listen. I wanted to ask, how does Doug and Mrs. Miles uh, yeah. feel about you guys coming full circle, recording songs for this new record in their house 15 years after the band's existence, approximately? They loved it. They got a huge kick out of it. And it was great for us, too. And, and it was especially meaningful because they have since put the house up on the market. And I think that was something they had been planning on doing for a little while, you know, because now is the time to downsize again. It's got to bring so, the market value up to have Ra Ra Riot yeah, recorded in this house. Yeah, rock history. A lot sure of, that's going on the list. A lot right? of indie rock history there. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so it was sort of like, we were like, oh, it's the end of an era. Like, Frenchtown's going away. We had some songs that we wanted to work on, and they happened to be going away on like a two-week vacation, I think, or something. So they were like, well, why don't you guys just come and take over the house while we're gone? But yeah, they were really happy about it. And yeah, we've recorded a lot there over the years. So, I mean, I know this is an old school conceit for people who make albums, but it sounds like you recorded a lot of this record in different places at different times. Was there ever a worry that this was going to turn into some sort of pastiche where songs didn't match up sonically or stylistically? Mm -hmm. And if not, then how did you overcome that to basically release the finished product? Yeah, that's a great question. That's That was definitely on our minds as we were working on it because in the past, you know, we used to all live in the same city, in the same neighborhood. We're all in Brooklyn. When we recorded an album, we would like prepare the album for weeks at our rehearsal space in New York. Then we'd get to a studio and we'd stay there for like six weeks and just like bang the whole thing out. We're used to making albums like that. We're all together the whole time. Six weeks, one place. Yeah, and which is great. It's a great, really fun way to make records. But we had done that now basically like four times. So it was partly that and partly the fact that we had since moved to different cities and you know people had jobs, so it was harder to get together for like that much time. So it just sort of like dictated, we just used it as an opportunity to take a new approach. And we're like, well, like we can do three days with like this producer this weekend, who can make it? Okay, well, next weekend I can make it to this session in LA. Who's gonna be there? Okay, we'll do bass and drums that weekend. So it was very, very piecemeal. Like Rebecca was recording some strings in Seattle I recorded some stuff like in my bedroom on GarageBand, like on the phone with a producer in LA. I was like, what do you want it to sound like? And I record it and send it to him. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff. But we were definitely worried because, you know, you never really know what the album's theme is going to be until you're done. But in this particular case, it was like extra kind of all over the board. And we were a little, a little worried at first, but we felt like that in itself was sort of representative of how it was made. And therefore there was like a valid theme and and that was actually partly why we ended up calling it Super Bloom because it just seemed like all these different things sprouting up randomly all at once and it was kind of made this collage of um, all these different things we like whether it was like super polished like contemporary pop or like 70s style pop or funk or like you know new wave stuff or kind of punkier dirtier stuff so yeah it was really fun change for us i think I, this is an existential question and it's kind of come up more recently than not i've been doing this podcast since i don't know 2012 2013 now i've interviewed a lot of bands and just like musicians and just like doctors and just like driving instructors like sometimes i have a bad day 
Does the same apply to the band? Does the same apply to you as a, as a performer? You go up on stage and you might have a bad day. You might hit a bum note or you have sound problems. When that happens, how do you bounce back? Because there's another show the next night mm -hmm. and you have to be on your A game. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, we get to have this career doing what we love, playing music with like some of my best friends traveling around the world and people who like the music we make pay money to come see us and sing along with the songs. Like that's incredible. And that's really the thing that it all comes down to because it can be really easy. You know, you feel like you're plateauing career wise or ticket sales haven't been great or the album's not doing as well as you thought it was going to like the singles not charting or like the bus broke down or, you know, all this kind of stuff that you mentioned. Yeah. And we've had a lot of that even on this tour, like technical issues, all these kind of things that happen all the time. We've been doing this for so long, you know, it's easy to get into a routine and like playing a show, which was at one point the scariest, most exciting thing I could imagine. And we would have such insane jitters before like the tiniest, most meaningless show in like some bar, you know, like oh, that means it matters that. to you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And over the years, and you know, now we're playing like bigger shows, bigger shows, and it's like, it's so routine. We've played like probably close to a thousand shows, if not more, you know, and it can be easy to start taking it for granted. And the show just can become another part of your day, like load in, sound check, got to go eat dinner, you know, do we have like a, a meet and greet, then it's time to play, you know, it, it can just go by like that. And that's really scary. So I think in times, and we actually had a little like pep talk before like the last show where we're like, hey guys, you know, we're here. Let's go on stage. This is like our hour and a half of the day where we get to have fun and do the thing. We get to play music. Who and, gives that speech? Uh, I said that at this particular oh, time. Was you? Yeah, yesterday. Right. But we always do this thing before every show. We all put our hands in, you know, like a sports team go one, two, three. Right. But yeah, we were saying that yesterday. It was like, you know, nothing else that's happening matters. Like, don't worry about like whatever the hotel reservation or like the food didn't come in time or like whatever is happening. That's like throwing you off and bumming you out. Like these people are here to see us play. We get to be here and play and that's all that matters. So like, let's, you know, keep focused on the music and you know, that's what makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> you know, but it's true. It's true. It's true. And it's so easy to get jaded and, and whatever. But if you saw the sincere look on his face, I know this is a <laughs> podcast, but he means it. Matt really means it. This band has been on an indie label, been on a major label. You've been on Barsook. You've been on mm -hmm. V2. V2, yeah. And now, what is Rob the Rich Recordings? So Rob the Rich is kind of like, you know, the music industry obviously is in flux and has been forever and has been every time we make a record, the playing field is completely different. So this time around, you know, we did the first four records with Barsook who were like amazing and you know, gave us that early look and were supportive over the years. And then after we were done with, um, like, the contract with them, you know, just felt like for our own, you know, it's like, let's see what else is out there. Let's see what we can do now. Let's try to make a push up higher. So with the last record, Capital Records started showing interest because of the song Water was doing well. Great song. And there was talk of us, uh, thank you, there was, there was talk of us maybe, like, upstreaming or maybe them signing us. And then... For like a multitude of reasons, you know, the, the windows didn't perfectly align and that didn't happen. But Capital has a subsidiary called Caroline Records. Sure. Basically, what we did is we, we made like a modular record label with ourselves and our management and our publishing company, Big Deal, and Caroline. So Caroline does like the distribution. Big Deal does the publishing. Um, our manager does the managing and we make the music. So it's sort of like we're our own label but we have like the assets of these 
major labels and their imprints like at our disposal, which is nice. So it's kind of like it feels like a nice balance and it's sort of maybe a, a new paradigm emerging. I don't know. But we were always kind of interested in self-releasing stuff, too, because, you know, there's all that good stuff. You creative control. Not that anyone ever placed any demands on our creativity at all, but good. it's just better for a lot of reasons to do it this way. And we feel more invested and more um, aware and in control of what's going on, I guess. Right. At the same time, you have that machine, that mm -hmm. big machine churning out yep. the things that bands don't want to deal with mm -hmm. on an everyday basis. So, yeah. so good on you for that. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, before we end, I want to talk about the bass. Let's start with somebody we've already referred to, Adam Clayton. Oh, yeah. Secret hero of you two or Wallflower? Oh, absolute secret hero. Nice. Yeah, good to totally, hear you say totally. that. I'll and, tell him you said and that. And one of my all-time favorite bass players, too. And uh, He's a rock. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, <laughs> and he provided a good entry point for me, too. I mentioned that greatest hit CD I had when I had my, uh, I suppose it was a disc man. And I was listening uh, dating yourself, to those, yeah, and I was listening to those songs on headphones and, like, hearing and feeling bass for the first time. And particularly his bass lines are so foundational and along with Larry, of course. So when I got my first bass, you know, um, one of those Joshua Tree songs, it's just eighth note, root notes the whole time. I'm blanking uh, With or without you? Yeah, yeah, thank you. With, I was going to say- My favorite song of all time. Yeah, with or without you, he one of the best bass lines <laughs> of all time. And it's literally like the most basic thing. It's like out of page one of like a book. But there's a reason it's so powerful, you know, because he's never trying to do too much. You know, being a YouTube fan, you're probably familiar with like the other three of the guys and the band are, are, you know, I love them all, but they all met in like this super kind of ultra conservative, like Christian youth group. Yes, they did. And oh, you really are a YouTube yeah, fan. Yeah. And they needed um, a bass player, of course, as all bands always do. And he was like the weirdo art student on campus who would be like streaking or like had dyed hair or wearing like, you know, like safety pins, all like punked out. And he lied actually about playing bass. Did you know that? he saw their ad they needed a bass player and so he went to the rehearsal and he's like yeah i play bass i played lots of gigs he said he kept using the word gig so they would think he was like knew what he was talking about right, right. he had never touched a bass in his life and when he started playing i think that was kind of apparent but they were like well no one else responded to the ad and he seems <laughs> like really cool so let's just go with it and like look at them now but i feel like he gave them a bit of their like edge too and grounded no them, pun you know? intended yeah <laughs> wow i didn't even realize that <laughs> wow who else influenced you growing up? I mean, just off the top of my head, I don't know about growing up per se, because I wasn't really aware of like bass as, no, a, what, as or, a thing. Or but later yeah, on in like, your life. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess my top five would have to be... Always uh, give me the top five. Paul I love McCartney. This. I'll say uh, Jocko, of course. I was late... Jocko Pistorius. I, I was late to Jocko, but that was like a complete game changer. I was going to bring him ready. up as a goof, but instead he's in your oh, top no. five. Absolute master. And it's funny because like, I love him just as much as I love Adam Clayton, you know, for very different reasons. Right, opposite of ends of the spectrum, but still. Um, Carol Kay, you know, Beach Boys and all sure. the Spectre records. Um, James Jamerson. I think I went over my limit. And did I say Sting? I, I, I That's have six, to say, but I'll take Sting. I'll say Sting. I, anytime I, you want to include Sting yeah, on the list, a though. A few of us are in a police cover band, actually. So I dress up as Sting, play his bass lines, which I love uh, so much. How are you at Tantric yeah. Sex? <laughs> that's so we're a tribute band so we do we try to embrace all aspects of their lives that's something we don't usually have time for in rehearsals but i'm working on that all right maybe <laughs> <laughs> matt thanks very much for the time man. yeah thanks ron all right lay inside by side on my room the night
That's a little song called Belladonna from Ra Ra Riot. I wonder if it's about the lead singer of Anthrax. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Flowers, both off the band's latest album, Super Bloom. Get the goods. Find out more. It's all at rarariot.com. I want to thank Matt for the great conversation, the band's tour manager, Christo, and the fine folks at 930 Club for rolling out the rah-rah red carpet, and Tyler Susie at Stunt Company PR for putting us all together. And big thanks to you, loyal listener, for turning out and turning up another episode of Independent Minded. Find out more at baldfreak.com, follow on social at baldfreakmusic, and if you or your granny are an independent artist with an interesting story or something new to promote, tell me all about it at ron at baldfreak.com. Hear all 108 godforsaken episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and iFartRadio. Huh? I didn't fart. Did you fart? Oh, it's iHeartRadio. Independent Minded is also featured on TheVinylDistrict.com. If you love vinyl, music reviews, concert photos, record giveaways, go there. And download the Vinyl District app on your smartphone to sniff out record stores big and small around the country. Next time on Independent Minded, reunited with the band that opened for my band in Asbury Park nearly a decade ago. Now they're kicking ass, and I'm doing this. <laughs> a talk with Tom Monda, guitarist in progressive rock band, Dirty Jersey's own Thank You Scientist. You're welcome. <laughs>